You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to this episode of Market Champions. I wanted to take this moment to ask you to leave a rating and a review if you're on iTunes or Spotify. It really helps my podcast grow and it helps me to keep bringing on the top guests in the industry. So thank you so much. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Lily Frankis, one of the smartest people on the Wall Street uh, community. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. He's a very big name uh, options trader. You can learn a lot about options and volatility and derivatives. And if you're into the quant world, you should definitely give her a follow at Nope, it's Lily on Twitter. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's awesome having definitely, you. Definitely, thanks, thanks for having me. I'm coming live from my parents' house. So <laughs> decor and background, totally picked by my mom. Awesome. So I first wanted to start off by asking you about your background, how you actually got introduced into the trading world. Remember you said, you know, you were, you, you pretty recently got into the world of trading. So could you sort of give us a description of, you know, your journey to that? Definitely. So, I mean, I've been in the market for years. Um, my first, I guess, where I, like my background is computer science and business administration from undergrad. So I had, you know, your basic finance background of, oh, how do you price a bond or, oh, what is compound interest? You know, the boring stuff that they make like beginner finance majors learn, which is like, okay, maybe more people would do this if you talk about options first. Um, but I started in the market in about 2016 when I got my first stocks, you know, I had a 401k, I had my employer stocks, I had my own portfolio, you know, I tried for years stuff like Wealthfront. So I wasn't, you know, complete novice or completely unknowledgeable. One of my biggest reasons that I went into the market last year in the trading, you know, meaning of the word was the coronavirus pandemic. So two things happened with me. One is I was a software engineer and I was just like, this is I was doing web dev and I was like, I cannot do this when I'm 30. Like, I mean, some people love web dev, some people are fantastic full stack engineers. I wanted to go back to school. So I, you know, applied and got accepted for a bioinformatics PhD, which I'm currently a student at UC San Diego. (laughs) And I realized that that would be a lot less money per year when you work as a a PhD student versus a software engineer. So so I got into trading in April of 2020 as mostly the way to like supplement my income during school. Mm -hmm. And then sort of, it it sort of took off from there (laughs) in a way. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, the way I describe it is like the first month it was easy money because everybody was in the market and it just crashed. Everything was going up, you know, literally could buy coals. You were a genius. Like, I think I made like $20,000 with like $6,000 my first month. And it wasn't because I was a genius. It was just because everything went up. So if you bought coals, you made money. 
I mean, I remember one night, like I was holding like $1,400 worth of Boeing Mm -hmm. when it rose from like 150 to like 200 in like a week in like June. And I woke up and I was like, I made 4,000 bucks. (laughs) I mean, my first, my first option trade ever was in April of 2020 with Groupon. And I didn't know what an option was. And I bought a call on Groupon on Robinhood and I made a hundred percent because wow. I just got into you. <laughs> and then you sort of got into sort of the smart ways of doing things, you know, building cool indicators like Nope, uh, which we'll get into. And... <laughs> I mean, so this period, you know, like the halcyon periods of your youth was May of 2020 when everything went up. So it was like, right. you couldn't really fuck up because even if like you could go to your cat and pick stocks, I was making money. <laughs> and that changed in June. Right. June 8th, a lot of my friends over the past month got blown out because guess what? The market sometimes goes down. So when that happened, I lost a bit of money. I didn't lose much because I was never over leveraged like some people I knew. But I was like, okay, this is no longer free money. That's cool. (laughs) So around June and July, I really started investigating, you know, I think the first month I didn't even know what the Greeks were. Like you didn't have to. Right. Uh, But then (laughs) I started investigating, you know, using my quantitative skills as a software engineer. It's like, this can be solved. So one of the reasons you know I got into Nope was I was in these day trading communities online on Discord. My favorite and my first one was Unusual Whales, where he's actually a friend of mine. He makes an option flow tool, and basically, I was inspired to like look: could you predict earnings using options? And I mean, historically, you have people like Tasty Trade Crew, like Tom and you know Bat. They're like, Nope, option flow do not have any meaning it's useless, you know, don't bother. And that was quite a different story from what we observed in Unusual Whales. I mean, we saw that some earnings, it was obviously insider trading. You had like these severely out of the money call options being bought. And it was like, could you predict earnings? Because there's a lot of money if you guess right. Like you can turn a dollar into like 50,000. Like, my favorite was Zoom, where it went from like $300 one day to like $420 the next day. Wow. And it's like, if you had bought a call, you would have made so much money. <laughs> so, it, yeah, I mean, and I, I can go into more about like how I created like Nope and what brought me on Twitter and what brought right. me here. <laughs> yeah, so did you actually find a way to predict earnings beforehand? Because, you know, you found out that, you know, there's a lot of money to be made and, you know, you saw insider trading and so we started looking into the earnings prediction using what is now the progenitor of note model in july of 2020 and our initial results seemed good we actually saw patterns and we signed up because remember we're broke like 20 something year olds we're not we don't have option metric status we signed up for the service called OmniQ, which was run by some guy who basically abandoned it. And it was like $40 a month for historical option data. And when we used it, it was like, holy shit, with this, it's 70% of the time it predicts earnings. That's amazing, right? 
and we calculated it was something like 1300% ROI. <laughs> and the data was crap. Like we oh. could not see there was leakage, but we saw in October that like the deltas they were giving us made no sense. And because of that, like we could not replicate our results. That sucks. So yeah, I mean, that's what, that was one of the major reasons why I don't predict earnings anymore. And I remember, uh, and I, I remember watching uh, your, I guess, interview on uh, reversions and diversions, which is your YouTube channel, which you run with uh, Monica Tari. And yeah, I, I remember you mentioned that you've, you, you got the idea from Nope, you know, while you were hanging out uh, at an apartment. So could you sort of talk about, you know, number one, how, how, you know, how you got the idea for Nope um, and you know, how you went about actually, you know, finding, testing and yeah. Sure, so, I mean, it's kind of complicated how I had the idea for Nope. The answer is, I don't even remember exactly like how I invented the formula. I mean, now if you read option degenerate marketplace, of course it makes sense that it's related to liquidity, like duh. But remember, I mean, at the time when I invested, I didn't know the difference between like, I didn't know open interest versus volume because I was still very new to the markets. And I just like observed this, this ratio. Like I didn't, it made sense to me logically that, oh, this is a comparison of options, you know, price impact versus, you know, like shares because that's what the formula is effectively saying. But it didn't like make like like there was no deeper meaning at the time when I invented it. I actually like hunted for meaning once you know I started observing it because I saw these weird phenomenon. I saw how it was predicting you know the market crashing. The seminal moment for Nope on Spy was we had started so I started using it for earnings in August and. I was like very, very, very sure that it could only be used for like binary catalyst events. I was like, this only makes sense in the context of like a binary catalyst like earnings. And someone was just like, could we see it on SPY? And I'm like, no, I'm like, no, this doesn't make any sense. Like don't. And I was like very vehemently opposed throughout August of using it outside of earnings. And I think finally I relented around like end of August and we turned it on and we saw these crazy readings. We saw end of day, it was over a hundred, like multiple days in a row. And I remember like looking at this and I had seen the same thing happen on Apple before it tanked. And I was like, wait, this is a bad sign. Like this is something that is wrong with the market. Mm -hmm. And the day that I saw it last was September 2nd. And I spent September 2nd warning people to get out of the market. And then September 3rd happened. <laughs> Got it. And, and so could you talk a little bit about how Nope works and you know how you can use, how someone can actually go on to a nopechart.com and use Nope. Um, to identify, you know, number one, exploitable trading opportunities. And, you know, second, you know, could you talk about, you know, what, what did you see uh, using the indicator indicator that told you that, you know, we were going to see a correction in September? So 
I'll talk about the last one first. I mean, I had just seen this happen on Apple, I think right before. So Apple in August, if you remember, went on a massive bull run. Right. And this was sparked by supposedly the share split, which of course matters in 2020. Um, <laughs> and I just remember seeing these high ratings on Apple and the next day Apple was down like 3%. And I was like, okay, that might be related. <laughs> and I saw these high ratings and I saw the like raw values and I'm like, this is not even a retail game. You saw like 2 million coal contracts traded on Apple in one day. And I was like, there is no way this is Robinhood. Like you don't have the scale as retail investors to trade 2 million coal contracts on Apple. And I saw it next day. So my monkey brain was like, wait, maybe there's a relationship between these extreme values and red next day, or like it going down next day. So when I saw this on SPY, I was like, hold up. (laughs) I was like, okay, this is, this looks bad. VIX is going up. Nope is, you know, going haywire. The market is like mega rallying. Like, I don't think this ends well. So that was like kind of my first hypothesis and then the market crashed or corrected if you want to call it. And I'm like, wait, hold up. And we saw the same thing happen in October. We saw the same thing happen in late November. We didn't have a correction, but we had like a week where it went down 2% right after. We saw the same thing in January and, you know, we saw it happen then and we saw the same thing in February and now we see what's happening now. So, I mean, I've looked in historical data. I actually wrote a paper on, you know, this end of day effect where I could see it happening since 2007. So it, I was like, whoa, this is not just some random fluke. This is like related to the market going down. Right. And so could you also talk about how, you know, people can actually, so, you know, what exactly, uh, what, sort of uh, what's the idea behind no, well, you know, what it's trying to track. And, you know, could you talk about how people can identify exploitable opportunities using no? Sure. So, I mean, the only, the only ticker that I have like full confidence in using it so far is, you know, the S&P or SPY, not because I don't believe it exists on other tickers, but more just because all my research has been on that since it's effectively the market. So, mm-hmm. You know, when you predict the direction of SPY, you're effectively predicting the direction next day of Facebook or Microsoft or any of these. And what you can do with it, so we found two use cases for it. The first one, of course, is this crash prediction. And, you know, I mean, I published it on Twitter. When you see these extreme positive values, it's usually considered a bad sign. And, you know, you could pull the data yourself from ORATS or SIBO directly or other end-of-day providers, or you can message me and I'll give you it. (laughs) (laughs) And basically you can use this kind of as like a hedging technique. Like once I saw it in mid-February, what I did was buy puts on my longs, like to cover them. And they're already up like 200%. (laughs) So the other use case other than speculation for like the market going down is like intraday uses. And that's probably the most popular use case for it. 
where we see these things called reversions where you know spy itself normally goes up and down per day it's you know kind of like a sinusoidal wave of sorts almost and what we notice is that at these high values so high negative high positive spy seems to revert so the price changes direction and i was very confused why i did that for months because i was like well, why is this weird indicator doing like why does it seem to predict the motion of s and p Right. And what happens is it's effectively a measure of liquidity exhaustion. So, you know, when the options market is heavily dominant on spies, so if there's a lot of calls or puts traded, what that just means is that the market has a tendency to reverse direction because, and I described this more in detail in my posts on option degenerate marketplaces, but what it means effectively is that hedging requirements are exhausting the market and causing direction to change. And so, you know, you describe this, uh, you describe it as sort of a structural inefficiency. So I remember when you were talking to Jim O'Shaughnessy, I believe he said that this, this cannot be armed away because it's a structural inefficiency as opposed to, uh, as opposed to something else. So, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, firstly, you talked about liquidity and, you know, you said that, uh, you said that, you know, it's liquidity that's actually, you know, driving all this and it's liquidity exhaustion that's producing these signals. So how do you define and track liquidity? That's, uh, that's the first part of the question. And uh, the second part of the question is, I just, well, I was just curious, how long has, you know, this structural inefficiency, uh, you know, existed? So in a sense, you know, how long has how long has sort of market maker delta hedging actually driven the market for? I mean, if you're familiar with options, I mean, it's something that's been known by traders since time immemorable. I mean, I think right. Hall and like his book in the early 2000s notes it, and I think dynamic hedging does too. I mean, it's basic mathematics. So. From my data sets, it looks like it became a dominant force around 2017. Mm -hmm. It got worse in 2018, especially with Walmageddon, where a lot of this short Vega trading, once XIV blew up, moved over to you know the SPX complex. But yeah, I mean, it's become a more and more dominant force. I think pretty much it's indisputable at this point that options drive the market. Got it. And could you also talk about how you ex how you define and track liquidity? So liquidity is this nebulous concept that everybody uses the word liquidity and it doesn't actually mean anything. I mean, my effective measure of liquidity, there's two ones that I look at, per well, three ones I look at. So on SPX, the major ones are VIX and ICJ, so the implied correlation of the SPX basket. Why that is useful is theoretically there's dispersion traders who what they do is when the implied correlation of SPX increases, they do correlation trading effectively to bring it back into line because there's mm -hmm. an arbitrage opportunity there. And what happens is when ICJ spikes, for instance, that implies that they're not trading because they're afraid 
And when they're afraid, you know, and also there's also co-movement when stocks are going down, they tend to basically correlate with one another rather than going up where they don't. So ICJ spiking is one of my number one like fear signs. And I saw this happen exactly on January 27th. VIX is a good measure of illiquidity when we're looking at market depth because as VIX, you know, increases, market makers and other high-frequency traders stop trading effectively since it becomes too volatile to, you know, predictably make a profit, as well as when VIX is extremely elevated, stuff, so effectively because market makers and HFTs are not operating on the SPX complex, then the bid-ask spread widens and the market depth at any given price point decreases. So those are two measures. I mean, market depth in this case really is given SPX or some ticker is, let's say $5, how many shares in one direction would it take to move it a dollar? Mm -hmm. So that's a good measure of liquidity. I think the most popular one that I know of is just the bid ask spread. So as you know, the bid ask spread widens, it becomes harder and harder to transact without moving the price. So it really like, I guess, depends what you ask, but most of the time they tell you the same thing. Right. I also wanted to ask you, uh, this is not, uh, this is uh, sort of, uh, I, I'm not sure if, if you've actually looked into this, but I'm just curious. So, you know, a lot of people, especially on the value investing side, you know, they tend to look at micro caps and small caps. So you know, I was just curious, you know, in these places, the option markets tend to be, uh, tend to be uh, more significant. So, how would NOPE be used in microcaps, where you know sometimes the options market in the stock is very significant? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't investigated it yet exactly, <laughs> and I don't want to give away all my secrets. So <laughs> I'll leave that. I'll leave that as an exercise for a reader. Got it. So, you know, you sort of, you know, you sort of don't have sort of the traditional uh, finance background in a sense, you know, you, you found it on your own. So how do you approach learning so deeply about options coming from a non-finance background? And, you know, what are sort of the key takeaways, uh, you know, in your, uh, in how you, how you actually got into the field? And if you had to unlearn and relearn trading again, you know, how would you do it differently? So, yeah, I mean, I get asked this question a lot from people, and I mean, my good answer is I didn't read any books. I mean, when I'm interested in a topic, I effectively fixated on a pretty small niche, which was, let's say, dynamic hedging, and you just read papers. You just keep asking questions. You find one really big, stupidly complicated question, like, for example, nope the prediction was could i predict corrections like that's stupid and like everybody would want to predict corrections and chances are you will not get a good answer but the more you work at it the more you you know understand your question the more interesting stuff will fall out of it and you know if you had to sort of unlearn and relearn it would there be anything different that you did or would you just you know sit down read papers I mean, I think it would have been nicer to realize earlier what I was looking at because 
I was very much in the beginning on my own when understanding this stuff. It really accelerated once I got on Twitter in October of 2020 mm -hmm. because I was in day trading communities and like, of course, there's a couple very knowledgeable people there, but most of them are there to YOLO and barely understand maybe the Greeks, maybe. And you're not going to like good mentorship and a good person to like bounce ideas off of is like super invaluable. You know, if, you know, I believe, uh, you know, you're starting salience capital. So I'm just curious, what is the hardest part about raising money to start a quant from uh, now? <laughs> that is a great question. I mean, we haven't raised yet effectively. I would say what the most difficult part would be from what I can see, and this will go back to my background because I've actually done startups before. I mean, I founded a startup a couple of years ago in the autism health space and money is easier to get nowadays than it used to be, for instance, but it's more difficult when you're an outsider. It's more difficult without a track record and it's definitely more difficult, I'd say, you know, when you have this, let's say, novel philosophy, when you're just like, this is completely different than, you know, what other people are doing, or if you're focused on, let's say, this completely blue sky question, that may not be amenable to a lot of investors, especially if it ends up, you know, being useful on very short time frames or in very like risk loving strategies. So ask me in a couple of weeks, maybe I'll have a different answer. <laughs> So one of the stocks that, you know, I believe you've been talking about was RKT. So out of curiosity, what is the ideal stock in terms of say market cap, options, liquidity, and so on, if you wanted to pull another GameStop or pull another AMC? How do you identify I mean, a meme stock before it becomes a meme stock? <laughs> see, that's, that's another one where I'm probably, I mean, I have some proprietary methods, which, you know, I'm working on. I'm not, as I keep telling people, I mean, I probably gave away too much of what I do, you know, mostly out of an experience. So I'm trying to make, leave people wanting to know more. Um, but stuff that I've written about before, I mean, you know, with these meme stocks, they tend to be low cap. They tend to be salient in the sense that, you know, they have some kind of memorable aspect to people's, you know, livelihoods. So stuff like AMC, that's a theater that people went to when they were children or still go to. GameStop, we all know what GameStop is. You know, Quicken Loans, a lot of people have done Quicken Loans and also his name is literally Rocket. So <laughs> there's a lot of like thematic reasons. I mean, another one is like in the short interest trade now of Tootsie Roll. Tootsie Roll is just like, who is bullish on Tootsie Roll as a company? You know, it's kind of funny and also kind of ironic. And those together tend to make meme stocks meme stocks. You know, as to like why they've happened, let's say right now, and why Rocket versus, I don't know, you know, Nokia or Blackberry or something. That's more proprietary and something I'm currently refining. But there's a lot of, you know, pretty obvious commonalities between all of these like meme stocks. Got it. And, you know, you can't forget the fact that it has to be bankrupt and it has to not have any cash flow. <laughs>
basically yeah i mean it's it's like it's completely divorced from this idea of this is a good investment like most of these meme stocks if not all of them you know may have some minor kernel of like yeah there's like a actual value in here but i mean a lot of them everybody knows it's like a gigantic game of greater fool (laughs) so it was just like you know make sure you sell it on time i guess (laughs) do you think it's sort of gone too far because i believe uh last month or the month before that you know we had these wall street bet guys trying to actually squeeze jp morgan out of their silver position and uh so yeah, do you think it's going too far or are you happy with where it is? Cause you know, you're making a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, honestly, um, I mean, honestly, what I was going to say is it's definitely gone too far. It's not a new thing. You know, you saw this in 2018 with the crypto run, with the right. weed run, with the tech mania in the 2000s. Like it's just mania in itself. In a lot of cases, this will end with retail holding bags. I mean, that's what we saw with GameStop. But, you know, eventually it'll probably stop. Enjoy it while it lasts. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I wanted to go into sort of a bit of your trading. So, you know, how exactly, or, you know, what factors influence how you structure an options position or how you express a view? (sighs) I mean, in general, lately, I prefer to be long versus short. So I tend to buy options more than I sell options. That said, I also do a lot of spreads because, you know, I don't like, I try to design a position based on maximizing my perceived risk versus reward. So lots of spreads, spreads tend to be better because you know, the risk versus the reward on the position is greatly diminished. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of reversion trading with Nope. So in those cases, I effectively just use like one wide spy spreads. Right. So when I do meme stocks, sometimes I hold overnight with just shares. But with options, I'd say mostly debit spreads, sometimes calendars, if I want to express, let's say, a Vega position. Got it. And uh, I also wanted to ask you, you know, you've got sort of this skepticism for conventional wisdom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, one of the one of the key takeaways from, you know, your interview with uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy was that you said you, you said that, you know, people who use technical analysis, you know, they tend to base, you know, base their trades on belief while you base it on, you know, models, especially those that are quantitatively tested. So, you know, how do you develop this, you know, apparent skepticism for conventional wisdom? And, you know, how did you decide that you were going to figure everything out independently? I mean, I'm a very impatient person as well as someone who does not effectively work under like authority. So I always question things. Um, I'm also an empiricist. I mean, I'm a PhD researcher. So I kind of apply the same understanding of science to trading versus, you know, let's say normal people who might be more rules-based or might be more greed-based or something more emotional and dare I say irrational. And at the end of the day, it's like, if you have a model 
and it doesn't work, then it, you throw it out. You don't, you're not emotionally attached to a system. And I've seen with technical analysis, I, especially that people get very defensive because not only is it not falsifiable usually, like it's very difficult to find a set of rules with technical analysis where you could say, based on let's say Karl Popper's series of falsifiability, it's like you cannot prove this works or doesn't work. Like yeah, you can't you do always post facto interpret it. And an indicator that you prove can predict only in the past is not very useful. So I'll give you a good example. There's a really common indicator called RSI, the relative strength indicator, yeah. which if you look at it in the past, it will usually spike before most major corrections. And with that, it's like, okay, maybe it's predicting, you know, disaster, right? Mm -hmm. But the issue is it does spike before corrections, but also spikes literally like all the time. <laughs> so you have this issue of like, there's no sensitivity with it because if you look in the past, yes, RSI will spike before, let's say a bull induced mania correction, but you cannot going forward know that you're about to correct. But can you not use that? So, can you sort of not backtest that and figure out whether it actually works or not? So, you know, you could just, because it's, you know, RSI compared to say head and shoulders, but it's significantly more quantifiable. So you could say that, you know, every time it goes above the 70 level, or every time it goes above the 80 level. Now, you know, I'm going to go short. So, yeah, I mean, you could, you, I mean, at least it's quantifiable, like you said, versus let's say visual. But from what I've seen, you know, first of all, RSI has different patterns and parameters you can use, and you can, of mm -hmm. course, fit your model according to whatever parameters look better on your back test. But it's also, like I said, it's just not specific enough. You know, you will see, and I mean, I've looked at RSI in particular, because oftentimes it does give similar ratings to note. And it's like, maybe these are identical. Maybe you don't have to do all that option, you know, mumbo jumbo we do. But at the end of the day, nope tends to be specific. So I know if nope is really elevated end of day, I know that's a warning. I don't know the same thing with RSI. Got it. I also wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things that you mentioned were models, and I wanted to talk about a different uh, kind of model. So do you sort of have any of your own option pricing models? And you know, if so, do you, what, what kind of additional information or parameters do you account for that's not only accounted for in the Black-Scholes model? Or are I, we- uh... No, I don't, I don't, I mean, I've thought of option pricing models. I mean, nope, effectively, and this will give another exercise to your viewers. It is an option pricing model in itself. You know, effectively it is, it, effectively will tell you when options are mispriced by nature of what it is. But I feel in most cases, especially for retail traders, you know, you're not gonna find a significant edge by making a new wall surface or a new pricing model. Um, are you on, uh, you know, this is something you know, I got quite frequently on Twitter. So are you on team Python or team R and why? Python, for sure. Oh, why? R, I hate the syntax so much. I mean, Python is probably slightly slower, although you can compile it, so should be as quick as C, theoretically. But R, I don't even 
know very well. I mean, Python is so intuitive versus R. Mm -hmm. I used to way back when be mostly in Java. I've gone through a JavaScript phase, but now pretty much all my data processing is in Python. Got it. And, you know, one more question that I wanted to ask you about options is, you know, options are by definition, basically the expectation value of, you know, the spread above uh, versus below the strike. So, um, so, you know, in the long term fundamentals overall tend to win, uh, you know, supreme and, uh, you know, overall stocks tend to usually uh, be concentrated in one order of magnitude. If it takes, for example, a price to earnings ratio, you know, most of them tend to be between a ratio of three and 30, um, despite the distribution of say the daily log returns being consistent with the underlying being part of some complex you know, stochastic process, for example, do you think quants are adequately incorporating this information into their option pricing models when they're taking longer term trades? Sorry, can you repeat that? <laughs> Feels like an interview question. <laughs> <laughs> So I was basically saying that in the long term, you know, fundamentals tend to reign supreme. But then, uh, you know, you know, you can see that most stocks tend to usually have used to usually be within one order of magnitude, right about three uh, to thirty, for example, if you take the PE ratio. So uh, I wanted to ask, you know, the distribution of the daily log returns being consistent with the underlying is uh, is part of some complex stochastic process. So do you think, you know, quants are adequately incorporating this information, the fact that, you know, fundamentals over the long-term tend to reign supreme? Do you think, you know, quants adequately incorporate that information into their option pricing models when they take longer-term trades? <laughs> I would assume macro quants and, you know, it really depends on your time horizon. I mean, effectively, if you're looking at let's say a couple of days, a couple of weeks, you know, fundamentals are not a significant driver of the stock price effectively, especially mm -hmm. not right now. When you're looking long-term, of course you have models like CAPM or, you know, like classic fundamental valuation models, which of course may reign supreme, although debatable if it still will going forward, especially <laughs> after, you know, the Federal Reserve's actions over the last 10 years. So effectively, I would say yes. I mean, fundamentals are just one method of valuing the stock, which right. theoretically represents some portion of a company. In actuality, it's almost like you said, the stochastic process, which you attach some narrative to to just to value it. I mean, the theoretical model of stocks was okay we're going to give you some cash flow in exchange for buying a part of the company. And that works, of course, with dividend stocks. You know, it's very obvious how those generate money. So, of course, given that they create a cash flow, they have a net present value. But there's a lot of stocks, especially tech stocks, which have no dividend. And effectively, in those cases, what you're buying is this idea that the company will be worth more in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's where fundamental analysis, of course, comes from. But now you have this third level of not only are you valuing companies according to what it should be worth in the future, according to, let's say, some fundamental metrics, which, of course, are just some story you're telling about the company in the first place, because at the end of the day, those fundamental metrics, to have any logical value, they need to create some cash flow eventually. Mm -hmm. Like 
Amazon can get away with not paying a dividend, but theoretically you are valuing Amazon now, according to the understanding that in the future you will generate money through the stock. But now you have a third layer of valuation where, and this is kind of on the salient side, where not only are you valuing according to fundamentals, but you're also valuing according to what you think other people will want to pay for right. in the future. And that's something that's not even a new concept. This is Keynesian Keynes beauty, beauty contest. Yeah. Exactly. So in those cases, I have not worked in industry. I couldn't tell you what macro quants, you know, are doing, especially with longer term time horizons. I know, you know, Jim O'Shaughnessy at OSAM, they're a longer term holding company. They look at social data. They're, they understand this process, the third layer that I just described. Right. Could I say this about the whole industry? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Would I say that fundamentals on the short term play a significant role? Probably not as well. Yeah. But I mean, Graham was correct when he said a long term market is a weighing machine. So eventually there will be reckoning. Right. And, you know, I believe Aaron Brown, uh, if, I, if, I, if I've gotten his name right, he's a quant trader. And, you know, he's also mm-hmm. talked about, you know, for example, in a poker game, you know, level one thinking is sort of caring about what your cards are. You know, level two thinking is caring about what your opponent's cards are. And your uh, level three, as you mentioned, is caring about what your opponent thinks your cards exactly. are. Exactly. <laughs> I uh, mean, that's, that's effectively the salience aspect of it. Like when you're doing a salience, when you're trading in a salience or trading salience in a hyper-connected marketplace, my blog post is cold. What effectively you're doing is you are betting on what you think other people think will be worth more in the future. That's effectively what salience is. Right. So you're, so, uh, wait, so what do you mean by, uh, it's a stupid question, but what do you mean by uh, trading salience? Cause I thought salience means like important or noticeable or something like that. It does. I mean, it's basically, it's the same as like when you say you're trading gamma or trading beta, like what you're saying when you're trading salience is you are predicting what other people will think is memorable or important uh-huh. and the response <laughs> in the future will be worth more money. So right. that's why you have these, this is why salience plays, they call them, are high momentum plays. Because usually when you're betting on this, you're betting on it making a lot of money really quickly. Because once you predict this trend, let's say through a gamma squeeze or through let's say a news item, the market will shift immediately. And you'll see stuff like rocket going up 70%. Got it. And I'm curious, uh, you know, one of the things that most options traders tend to try and exploit is this idea of a variance risk premium. So, you know, if, uh, you know, for listeners, uh, you know, variance risk premium is basically the tendency of this implied volatility to um, be greater than realized volatility. So I was just curious, you know, apart from, you know, trading NOPE, do you have, you know, what are the different strategies that you use to identify these overpriced variance risk premiums? I would say lately, it's mostly the opposite. I would say, you know, you want to be long gamma. I mean, looking at the market, I have not been comfortable selling options in a couple of months. Got it. And could you talk about why? (laughs) I mean, it's due to a couple of factors. I mean, once you are in this 
options of liquid marketplace. You have magnification of volatility, and when I say volatility, I mean like actual volatility, not implied volatility. Mm -hmm. So you see these massive moves, you know, where VIX, for instance, may spike pretty rapidly because everybody's afraid, even for a pretty small move in SPX. Or right. you see that, you know, we go from 380 to 392 to 380 again, as we did last week. Right. So in those cases, you usually see that the realized volatility is actually greater than the implied volatility. And additionally, what happened with, let's say, the variant risk premium is historically it was a good trade. But if you look at, let's say, put right strategies or buy right strategies where let's say you write a call option against SPX and you create an ETF on it. Those have been underperforming SPX for a while. Right. And largely because last year the variance risk premium effectively disappeared. The market actually moved more on the indices than you would have got selling options on it. Mm -hmm. So I mostly learned this the hard way when I was selling covered calls against the Microsoft shares I and I kept being blown away. So there are safe ways to sell it, but I think in general, these variance or screaming strategies, not only are we in a new market dimension where a lot of participants are not effectively calculating volatility right. and predicting implied volatility, but also it's a crowded trade. You know, mm -hmm. everybody knows how to sell options now. All the pensions, all of these large funds did it for years to juice returns. So you've got it down to the point where effectively you're going to break even probabilistically on selling options. Okay. It's not to say that there aren't some single names that still have, you know, a VRP, but I would be careful. Right, right, got it. So I've got uh, two more questions for you and, you know, they're not entirely related to trading, but uh, I'm curious. So could you talk a little bit about the cafe that you said you're going to open one day? <laughs> I mean, so for that, I've always said this, like, I like to bake. I like coffee a lot. Like I really love coffee. And way back when I bought like this espresso maker and I just like have not used it for years because it just takes so much time and I have like other things to do. Same with baking. Like I got from a friend a couple of years ago, like the Tartine bakery book and I made everything from like eclairs to like gruyeres to like brownies, truffles, all that fun stuff. So once, you know, I make a lot of money hopefully or something, <laughs> I would love to like retire and like open a nice cafe where I could just like make, I could bake things and make coffee and it would be, I wouldn't have to worry about money because of course I'd be like filthy rich. <laughs> and maybe then I would also have like a stand-up comedy night or something. <laughs> that would be fun. That would definitely be fun. You know, I would, I would definitely show up at, you know, one of those comedy shows. Uh, and, you know, my final question is, uh, and, you know, this was very popular by a lot of, uh, you know, the Twitter community. Uh, how does it feel knowing all of your wildest dreams are about to come true? <laughs> I mean, this last month and a half has just been really surreal because my parents, when I started trading, like they heard about my model, everybody knew about my model around me and like, okay, nobody really gave a shit for like months. I then just started calling out reversions on, you know, Twitter and I just 
everybody at once was like holy fuck what like it keeps working like even today it just keeps working and nobody understands like how the hell it keeps working so it's been really fun to talk on Bloomberg to people like Jim O'Shaughnessy who by the way is an awesome guy it's been awesome to learn I wouldn't you know go as far to say as all my wildest dream will come true yet because I'm a very um pessimistic person by background you know which is hilarious because I'm an option trader so I don't believe it till I see it and you know I'm currently trying to build a business with this I'm trying to get into the field and you know do this cool research and hopefully make money off of it but right now I'm still a PhD student so hopefully in a month I'll have something different to tell you but right got it Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And, you know, if anyone hasn't, you know, followed Lily on Twitter, I hope it's Lily. Make sure to check it out. Make sure to check out her YouTube channel, Reversions and Diversions. And uh, make sure to check out her Medium as well, which I think is Mimetics in the Marketplace. Oh, that's my Substack. But my Substack, my, my Twitter is so Got don't it. worry about it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's awesome having Perfect. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.